Great High Priest, I think I called it. But I'm just going to mess around with it a little bit. And um, you'll see, if you look at the handout, you'll see there's a section um, with NB at the top of it. And so what I'm going to do, I want to deal with that first. And then what I want to do is essentially preach a sermon uh, on uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 8. So this one hopefully will be a bit more sermony, not quite like I might do on Sunday, but a bit more sermony um, to send us off uh, with hopefully high thoughts of Christ. Um, but, but I thought we were doing one more bit of kind of um, digging deep to understand the, 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 uh, the world of Leviticus. If I, I'm actually, why don't you pass me that, sorry, uh, just so I can see what I need. Yeah, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need it in a minute. Sorry, let me find where, uh, what you've got. Here we go, Great High Priest, bro. Um, so, this has come up a couple of times, and I thought it might be useful uh, to deal with it. The whole area of um, holiness and um, cleanliness and being holy and unclean and all the rest of it. Uh, we came up last night in the context of why is it that if, you have, if a woman has a, a child, they're unclean, uh, and so on. Two things you, you need to understand. There are two pairs in Leviticus. Okay, we're in seminar mode here, by the way. So two pairs in Leviticus. Um, that are kind of opposites. There's clean and unclean, and there's holy and common. You'll see them down there on your sheet. Clean and unclean, and holy and common. And they are not the same things. So to be holy and to be clean are not the same thing, and to be common and to be unclean are not the same thing. So have a look at uh, Leviticus 10. And verses 10 and 11, you'll see them in action. These are instructions to the priests. One of the main things the priests are going to uh, do, you know, we often talk about them. they're the ones who offer the sacrifices, or they're the ones who do the teaching or lead the worship. Here's a key job for a priest, Leviticus 10, 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. See the pairs, holy, common, clean, unclean. Let's start with holy and common. Um, holy, here, okay, so park, park everything you're thinking about holy means being like Jesus and the holy life, I think. Holy here means dedicated to the Lord's service, particularly given to the Lord's service for his special use. Hence, the tabernacle itself is holy. In a tent. And, and already you can see that it can't be kind of moral. The candlestick inside it is described as holy. The bread is holy. And what does it mean to have a holy candlestick? It doesn't mean it's the best behaved of all the candlesticks in Israel, does it? Rather, this is the candlestick that is going to live in God's house. And because it's near him, dedicated to him, it is holy. It's a, almost a kind of positional thing. The opposite of holy is common, at least in the ESV's translation. Common. Um, some translations might say profane. And actually profane is, is, is an old English word we don't use very much, but, but it's kind of helpful, and particularly helpful if you know Latin, um, which, you know, I'm sure St. Andrew's graduate will do. Um, profane. Pro means outside, and, and fane, the farnest word, it means the temple. So profane things, or common things, are things outside the temple, away from God, not dedicated to God's service. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them. They're essentially secular. 
So think about the, the days of the week. One day is holy, the Sabbath day. The other days are common. There's nothing wrong with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They're just not the holy day. Okay, they're particularly set aside for God's day. Okay, so holy in common. And then there's clean and unclean. Again, opposites, but not the same as holy and, and, um, and common. And here things get a little bit more complicated. You'll see again on the, on the sheet, there are two ways you can be unclean. There is ceremonial uncleanliness, or ritual uncleanliness if you like, and then there's moral uncleanliness. Let's start with the, with the ceremonial uncleanliness. Again, I'll explain why some of this matters in just a minute. Ceremonial uncleanliness. You become ceremonially unclean really from three things. Um, it's all there in Leviticus 12 to 15, but we're not going to have time to read three chapters of, of Leviticus. Three main things make you ceremonially unclean. Um, lepra, sometimes translated as leprosy, um, skin diseases, that kind of thing. It's not leprosy as we know it in the modern sense, but anyway, those kind of skin diseases. Emissions of blood or semen. That's what we touched on last night. Blood or semen come out of your body. That makes you unclean. And then thirdly, touching dead bodies. Okay, death makes you unclean. And in fact, touching any of those things, you touch a dead body, you become unclean. So, so uncleanliness is kind of infectious, as it were. Now you'll see, those things are all but inevitable. Skin diseases, emissions of blood and semen, dead bodies. They, they, they're not wrong. They're not morally bad things. Childbirth, menstruation, having sex. You know, they're not sinful things. In fact, they're things that are commanded. But they are enough to make you ceremonially unclean. Why those things? I touched on this last night. It's not explained in the text, so everybody's slightly guessing. But I think the best guess seems to be that they're all to do with death. So you've got skin diseases, emissions of body, from the body, and then death. Death is obviously to do with death. Skin diseases, kind of corpse-like uh, look, a death-like look. And then emissions is, is life coming out of your body, blood, semen. It's coming out of your body. Life is being emitted. And particularly when you pair that with Jesus' words that on the inside we're, we're corrupt, we're unclean morally. Touch on that in a minute. Then perhaps it begins to make sense. The symbolism makes sense. Now, crucially, there is no punishment for being ceremonially unclean. This is the kind of thing where atheists get hold of Leviticus, pull it out of context, and say, look how, you know, what a vindictive God who. Um, is punishes women for menstruating or punishes men for sleeping with their wives or you know, what kind of psycho God is that there is no punishment for being unclean it's not wrong there are rituals that cleanse you that you need to go through and if you were to ignore them well that becomes a sin because you're ignoring God's word but becoming unclean itself is not a sin in fact in time, at times you're commanded to become unclean um, Leviticus 21 through notes 1 to 3 it's all about how you sort of deal with dead bodies and obviously you've got to touch you're, you know, you, remember your family drops dead you're not meant to sort of run away from them you've got to deal with them you're commanded to touch them and look after them so you're commanded to come unclean there's no way God would command you to sin it's further proof that being unclean is not the same as being sinful so there's that whole category of ceremonial uncleanliness but there's also moral uncleanness even in Leviticus um, Leviticus 18 deals with this lots. Um, it might be sleeping with a neighbour's wife. Leviticus 18.20. Sleeping with an animal. 
Leviticus 18.23, consulting mediums or spiritualists, Leviticus 19.31. There's a whole bunch of stuff that will make you (coughs) unclean that is moral, clearly moral. So what that means, if you look at those four categories, it would be possible to be common and clean or common and unclean. It would be possible to be holy and clean or holy and unclean. You can can be in any box. And not all of them are problematic. If you're common and clean, that's absolutely fine. Nothing needs doing. You don't have to be made holy. Uh, this explains, by the way, things like... Do you remember that story of um, when they're transporting the ark and um, uh, in the days of David and it, it falls off and Uzzah puts his hand up and touches it and he's and he, he dropped down dead? And you kind of read that. Oh, what the heck is going on? But the problem is he was not holy. He wasn't a set-aside, sanctified person authorised to be kind of touching the ark and doing stuff with the ark. And so he transgressed the boundary. It'd be a bit like walking into the Holy of Holies when you're not the high priest. Uh, Eventually, what would happen is if uncleanliness mounted up and wasn't dealt with by like the purification offerings, for example, um, then you have to read this on your own time, I'm afraid, Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, and the stuff in 15 as well. It's a bit like all the dirt build up on the tabernacle. God's house became dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. All the uncleanliness, all the uncleanliness. And eventually the threat is, if, if that's undealt with, I'll move out. And so the Day of Atonement, at the heart of the book, which is usually the best known part of Leviticus, is all about cleansing the tabernacle. And you read the chapter, it's all about cleansing the tabernacle. You've had a year's worth of built-up sin and uncleanliness. And God's house has become mucky. And so on the great Day of Atonement... Through the sacrifices, the scapegoat, the goat that takes the you know, festival sins over the goat, goat goes out of the wilderness. It's as if the tabernacle itself is cleansed. And that, of course, makes sense because we know that the tabernacle is a picture of the church, the people of God. All the way through the Old Testament, we read about the temple and the tabernacle. But when we get to the New Testament, we know that the, tab- the true tabernacle, the true temple, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. And so that the physical thing in the Old Testament represents the people. So just occasionally you'll get people say, well, when you read about the Day of Atonement, all those silly conservative evangelicals talk about atonement and penal substitution, propitiation. But look at the text carefully. It's about the, it's about the, the thing being cleansed, not the people. But the whole point is the thing represents the people. Um, that's always where the real problem is. So cleanliness and uncleanliness, holiness and common, commonality. Um, they're not the same thing. Uh, and when you read both the Old Testament and particularly Leviticus, it's useful just to have those, those in mind so you don't get confused. And it's particularly useful to have them in mind so you don't think being unclean is necessarily sinful. There we go. That's part of the last bit of kind of heavy-duty work we're going to do. So come with me to Leviticus 8, and hopefully we can finish in a bit more of a pastoral vein. Leviticus 8, this is the, the consecration, the anointing of Aaron. In other words, moving Aaron, Moses' brother, he's going to be the high priest, from that realm of common to holy. So when you move from common to holy, at least in the ESV's word for it, is to consecrate something. Okay, to move something from being common to holy. 
this, this is what's going to go on in Leviticus 8. Let me read. I won't read the whole thing, but let me read a bit from uh, beginning, of chapter, uh, beginning of verse 1. Then Aaron, uh, sorry, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash round his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastplate on him. And in the breastplate, he placed the Urim and Thummim. And he set the turban on his head and on the turban in front, he set the gold plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them, holified them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its sand to consecrate them, holify them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate, holify him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them. As the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, let's look at what's going on uh, and then uh, why it matters. I know it's all out of order. Let me start with a question. What's it like to actually approach God? Do you ever think about actually approaching God? We, we talk about God in seminars, we, we hear about him at church, but just for a moment, cast your mind forward and Recognise again that one day you will come before God. You will be in his presence. And you'll stand before him essentially on your own. There'll be no parents, and no student leaders to kind of shield you and talk for you. You will be before the throne of God as an individual. There'll be nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. There'll be nothing new or uh, more to do. And so we need to be ready beforehand, don't we? What how you feel, what how you actually feel about approaching God, about meeting God in all his fullness. If we're often if we're honest, for many of us, actually at some level. What we feel is fear. We've read the New Testament. We know Paul. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I, 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 I long to depart. It's better by far to depart, to be with him. We know what we're meant to be like. We're meant to be longing for God. But for a huge number of us, there is, at the very least, a seed, if not a real kind of tumultuous wave of fear within us, that it might not be okay. Still fear God. Leviticus, as I hope you've picked up, has been about approaching God. What happens when God draws near and what we can do to come to him in safety. And if we've been doing things in order and I hadn't jumped ahead last night, what we'd have just seen is, is the, um, the offerings. Okay? At this stage of the book, we've just done the offerings. But who's going to bring the offerings? And that's what chapter 8 deals with. 
Uh, We need not just an offering, but a man to bring it. So let's look at what happens. Uh, First of all, this this is Aaron's ordination. Uh, I'll just run through this relatively quickly if we don't want to get sucked into the details. Uh, In verses 1 to 4, there's a public gathering. The church are called um, by the Lord through Moses to assemble. Verse 3, assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle is like the Garden of Eden. Angels said into it, all the stuff we saw on day one. So it's as if that the people, the assembly, the congregation, the church, are there at the entrance to Eden. But they're not in Eden. They're still on the outside. So they're gathered by God's word. And then Aaron is brought forward. And three things happen to him in verses 5 through 9. He's washed. He's clothed. And then in verses 10 through 13, he's anointed. See that? So uh, verse uh, 6, Moses brought Aaron and his sons, who are going to be the kind of other priests, not the high one, but the, the other priests. And he washed them with water. Verse 7, he put the coat on him, and there's a whole bunch of clothing uh, described. Uh, Then in verses 10 through 13, he's anointed. Moses took the anointing oil. And he anoints the stuff, but he also anoints Aaron, verse 12. And in verse 12, we have the first occurrence of a Messiah in Scripture. You might know the word Messiah is the Hebrew word. Uh, for anointed one. This is Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. And for the first time in scripture, if we've been reading from Genesis, for the first time we have an anointed, a messiahed person. Aaron is anointed, messiahed, Christed. Our first Christ. You'll um, know perhaps that when we call Jesus Christ, he's picking up the three great anointed offices of the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king. So Christ... We know it's not his surname. It doesn't just mean king. Um, sometimes you hear people say that. Jesus Christ just means Jesus the king. Well, it means more than that. Not less, but more. Kings are anointed with oil, but so are prophets and so are priests. So to call Jesus the Christ is to say that he's the great prophet, priest, and king. His work is threefold. <coughs> so verse 10 through 13, he's anointed, he's messiahed. And there's a series of offerings Again, we're not going to pull in. If you look at the offerings a lot, if you're interested in verses 14 through 17, it's the sin offering, the purification one, the detergent one. And then what's going to be next after you've done that? It's going to be the ascension one, isn't it? And lo and behold, it is. Verses 18 to 21, the ascension, the going up, the transformation one. And then at the end, there's a special one. In verses 22 through 29, we read about an ordination offering. Now that's it's not one of the regular offerings, so we've not talked about it. I'm not sure you get it again in the whole Bible. I forgot to check that. Um, but it's a slightly odd one where a male lamb is killed, the blood is applied um, and sort of daubed on the, 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 um, the lobes of their ears and on the thumbs of their right hand, on the big toes of their feet down there in verse 24. And it, it, it seems that what's going on there is like a little Passover. Um, do you remember when, when Israel was called out of Egypt? They sacrificed the lamb and the blood was daubed over the, the doorway. It wasn't enough just to kill the lamb. The blood was shed, but it had to be applied to your household. And as it went over the door of the household, it's as if the blood was being applied to everybody within the household. They were safe. We're here too. I'm sorry. And that made God's people, the holy people, the people who could come out and dwell with him. 
That's why in Exodus 19, the whole of Israel are called a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. And it seems in uh, Leviticus 8 here, that's been kind of focused in on, on, on Aaron. So in verses 22 through 25, as we get this kind of slightly strange uh, ordination offering, the, the blood of the lamb again is daubed on the kind of extremities of Aaron, his, his ears and his hands and his, or his thumbs rather than his feet. He is being consecrated. The lamb, the blood's lamb is being applied to him. And lo and behold, in verse 26, it even comes with unleavened bread, very reminiscent of the Passover. It's a bit like a mini Passover for Aaron, who's going to be the priest of the kingdom of priests. I think that's what's going on with that offering. But the basic pattern is washed, clothed, anointed. Those three things, clothed, washed, anointed. Pinted already that, that Aaron is a picture of Christ. There's so much you can do with the high priest in the Old Testament. If we had time, we could look at his clothes. You might know that his breastplate and his shoulders, uh, on the, when this um, clothing is described in more detail in Leviticus, bears the name of the tribes of Israel. Benjamin, Judah, Ishka, Gad, and so on. And so the high priest, wherever the high priest goes, Israel goes. That's really significant when the high priest gets to go right into the centre of the Holy Holies, right into God's presence. Because he's going there not just as an individual, but he's carrying his people with him. Just as, of course, one day Christ will ascend and carry us with him through death, through resurrection and into heaven. But for our purposes now, just think about those three things, clothed, washed, anointed. Well, one day, God will send a true high priest. And the same things will happen to him. God the Son comes and is clothed in flesh. He becomes man. Takes on our nature that wasn't natural to him. Jesus, of course, hasn't always been a man. He's always existed as God, God the Son, fully God, eternal, blessed. But he had to clothe himself with human nature in order to come and represent us. Priests have to be from the people they represent. Uh, Hebrews 5 speaks about this uh, in more detail. Uh, one of the key qualifications is that the priest, the high priest, must be selected from among the people. And so Jesus, because he is not naturally from among us, he is from heaven, not earth... Uh, clothes himself in flesh. Hebrews 5.1 Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices from sin. So he's clothed in flesh. He's then washed, isn't he, at his baptism. At Jesus' baptism, he goes into the waters not to have sin washed off him, in fact, that's why John the Baptist is so confused. What are you doing coming think, to be baptised? But rather, I think two things are going on. Uh, first of all, Jesus is symbolically identifying with his people. It's as if when he goes into the water, the sin that's been washed off. You understand this is symbolic, of course. It's not magic. But the sin that's been washed off all the other Israelites into the Jordan is washed onto him. We go into the water. The Israelites go into the water dirty and come out clean. He goes in clean and comes out dirty. He's willing to plunge into the muck for our sake. 
But also I think there is an echo, a symbolism of this anointing of Jesus as the great high priest. He's been clothed, now he's washed. He has that kind of ceremonial washing that's going to begin his life. That's right at the start of his ministry. Begin his, his, his public life as our great high priest. And that's only confirmed by the fact that what happens is he comes out is the spirit descends on him. He is anointed. He is Christed. You might say that is the moment that Jesus is Messiah or Christed. And he explains it as such straight afterwards. Luke 4, as he goes into the temple, uh, tap, sorry, the synagogue to preach, he picks up the Isaiah text and says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me, messiahed me, just after his baptism. All the Old Testament anointings with oil, pourings of oil, were really pictures of a true anointing, which is with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, the man, is now full of the Spirit, Christed by the Spirit, messiahed by the Spirit, and washed. And so his baptism is, is in a way his ordination, his commissioning to be the great high priest who will really represent his people. And of course, Jesus will then live his whole life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has to live as a real man to represent us. And therefore, he defeats Satan in those battles with Satan, not as God, not just flicking Satan across the universe, but as man. Because it is men who have sinned, and therefore men who need to live the life that Adam was called to. Arguably, he even does his miracles by the power of the Spirit and his human nature. Several times, Matthew 10, and a couple of times in Acts, the miracles are attributed to Jesus, not to his divinity, but to the Holy Spirit working within him. He is a man truly full of the Spirit. Clothed, washed, and anointed. Uh, Jesus comes and becomes the real, the true high priest. So that's what's going on. Why does it matter? What's being shown? Three things as we wrap up. The grace of God in the priesthood of Jesus for the sake of his people. The grace of God. Who is, in the bit of state, who is this man Aaron who is anointed as the great high priest? This is Aaron, who in Exodus 34, you might remember, led the people in the whole rebellion of the golden calf. Remember, Moses has gone up out of sight on the mountain. He's gone a long time. The people down the bottom begin to worry. And so they say, well, let's make other gods. Let's make these golden calves to represent Yahweh. And Aaron, who ought to there and then have said, stop it. What are you doing? We've just been rescued. Aaron goes along with it. Bring me your gold. Aaron is, is, as it were, the leader of the rebellion. And yet in his grace, God chooses Aaron to be the great high priest of Israel, the first great high priest of Israel. It's not unlike Peter. Peter, the one who abandons Jesus, who even in the face of the, the slave girl can't keep his faith. Peter is the rock on which the church is built you might pick all sorts of leaders, mightn't you? Old Testament or New. Paul, the slaughterer of the early church. David, the adulterer, who arranges a, a kill on his conquest's husband. All these men, by the grace of God, used massively in the service of the gospel. Sometimes I think we think sin can be forgiven... But I've disqualified myself from being any use to the kingdom. 
I can just about uh, you know, agree that God will now let me into heaven because Jesus died for me. But after what I've done, I can no longer be used. After what I did last week, I can no longer be used. With my history, my record. And perhaps particularly if you've been a Christian for a while, perhaps you've had some responsibility, and then you've fallen into deep sin. Well, perhaps if I was a new Christian, that would be kind of pardonable. But I've got no excuse. It's been too, too long. I'm, I, I'm meant to be beyond this. And we've fallen and we, cannot, we think we can be forgiven, but we cannot be used. Aaron, David, Paul, Abraham, John Newton, the great slave trader. Time and again, we see this pattern of fall and restoration. So the grace of God is certainly shown in who he selects, but ultimately it's shown even more, of course, in the Lord Jesus. It is God who provides, selects, and provides the high priest. So when Jesus comes, and he comes as God... To do this high priestly work of offering the sacrifice, which in his case is not a lamb or a goat, but his own body. We are not seeing a third party come on stage to try and mediate between us and God. Jesus' priestly work is not about twisting God's arm to forgive us. The priest himself, as well as the offering, is a gift from God. Leviticus is all of grace. Now, if that sort of seems a bit rather obvious or not particularly interesting, let, let, me, let me ask you a question. Does God love you because Jesus died for you? Or did Jesus die for you because God loves you? Let me say that again. Does God love you because Jesus died for you? Or did Jesus die for you because God loves you? Your fundamental answer to that question is vitally important. The answer is, God loves you, therefore Jesus died for you. And, and I think there's, there's a slight danger in, in conservative evangelical circles. I've said this a little bit. I'm, when you preach, it's, the real danger is you, you're preaching kind of about your own foibles and kind of problems all the time. Uh, or even worse, things you see in your own world that kind of wind you up. Um, so this is slightly confessional. Okay? Maybe this doesn't land with you guys at all. But I can tell you, in my own experience, 41 now, um, been a Christian from sort of teens, conservative evangelical world. For a long time I had this misunderstanding in my head. My understanding of the gospel went something like this. Um, God made me. I'm a sinner. God is rightfully angry with me. And all those silly liberals who deny sin and wrath are undermining the gospel. So I need to absolutely hammer home the penal substitutionary death of Jesus. That is, that on the cross, Jesus took not just my sin, but the wrath of God at my sin. And therefore, I can be forgiven. Now, so far, so good. That's all true. Okay, absolutely true. Don't panic. <laughs> Matty, breathe. John, breathe. Um, that is true. Okay? And you are a silly liberal if you deny any of that. But, but, where I went with it in my head was, somewhere deep in my psyche, um, God basically doesn't like me because I'm a sinner and I still sin. God fundamentally is frowning at me. If I was to look up to heaven, I would see a frown. But I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb, so he has to let me in. Now, I wouldn't have put it that sort of nakedly, that boldly. But, but fundamentally, somewhere deep down in my head was this suspicion that God was kind of against me, rightly, because I'm a sinner. I lack faith, I lack zeal, I lack love. Rightly against me. No qualms on that. 
But because of this thing called the gospel, the mechanics of which I was very eager to defend against all the liberals, because of the mechanics of the gospel, I get in. What that leaves you with is a God who, deep down in in the recesses of your mind, you fear doesn't love you. And that's all because I was seeing God's love as a result of the cross. In other words, Jesus comes as the one who moves God from anger to love. Whereas, of course, the reality is, Leviticus points to it and the New Testament attests it, that it is God's love that led him to send the priest and the sacrifice. Indeed, he is ultimately the priest and the sacrifice because God the Son, Jesus, is no less divine than God the Father. It is not the Father's anger poured out on the Son at the cross, as if the Son has no anger and the uh, the Father alone has it. It is God's anger, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, poured out on God the Son in the flesh. The anger, the punishment, lands on Jesus according to his human nature. So we've went against Jesus just as much as we have the Father. And the love is just as much the Father's as it is Jesus'. The whole gospel is a story of love. And the love doesn't cancel out the anger. The anger and the wrath is there, rightfully. But as Calvin says, God can be wonderfully angry with those he loves. You don't have to choose between them, but it is the love that leads to the rescue from the wrath and the anger. So many of us think, to use the old Puritan language, we have hard thoughts of God. We suspect he doesn't really love us. But the proof is in the priest and in the offering. And the fact that that priest and offering are God himself. Not some third party walking on stage to interpose between you and God. The grace of God in the priesthood of Jesus. I've said a fair bit about this already. Just imagine for a moment, you were, you were sat down with a non-Christian friend. And they ask you what you've been doing this week in my life. Uh, the Bible. And they say, oh cool, what bit? Mm-mm. Leviticus. I'm like, oh, brilliant, what's that about? Mm. Sort of uh, priests and killing animals and stuff and the lobes of cows and where you put them when you... Yeah. Uh, it's a book that seems a long way from our, our, our circumstances, doesn't it? But dive a little bit deeper. Think about priests. What would make you really happy? I know it's a really naff question, but what would make you happy in life? If a lad genie popped up now and said, one wish, you can have it. What do you want? The chances are that thing depends on someone else. Maybe it's a... a Boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. Maybe it's a degree, a career. Maybe it's to be sort of brought into a social group. Maybe it's some sort of financial, I I don't know. The chance are someone else needs to deliver you towards that little happy paradise. That's all priests are. Priests are the people who deliver you to paradise. Our world is full of priests. The trainer at the gym who is the one that can unlock the secret and move you from fatty to fitty. Um, the tutor who is um, able to coach you through from being a, a third to a first-class student. Frankly, the social gatekeeper in a, in a group of friends who is going to be the one who decides whether the, kind of, the teenage girl is allowed into the group or not and whether they can sit at the back of the bus or have to go and sit in the front with their uncle kids. The drug dealer who can supply the, the hit that's going to lift you up. Oh. To, to, to paradise. Our world is full of priests. And so Leviticus 8 isn't so weird. It's equipping. Leviticus 8 is equipping one man to do the thing that will really make us happy, really deliver us to paradise, really get us back into Eden. 
As part of the challenge is to ask yourself, what are the priests in my life that I think can deliver? That are therefore claiming the throne of my heart above Christ. Only Jesus can really deliver you to paradise. Jesus, the high priest. So just as we close, come, come to Mark 1. It's a passage I alluded to on the, the first day. The grace of God in the priesthood of Jesus. Mark 1. I love this passage. Whenever I get to just go and preach somewhere randomly, our minister's on holiday, can you come and do one sermon, one off? I so often go back to this passage. Mark 1, verse 40. I know some of you are studying Mark in your small groups, so hopefully familiar territory. Mark 1, verse 40. And a leper, there's that leprous word again, same as the Old Testament. The leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Remember the priest decides who's unclean and clean, we saw that at the beginning. And offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, that's the purification sacrifice, uh, for a proof to them. But he, the leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Here is a leper, an unclean person in the language of Leviticus. Ceremonially unclean. He's cut off from his people. He can't live in the same houses as the street, village. He's cut off from worship. He can't enter the synagogue. He is unclean, out there, cast out. And as Jesus will say in Mark 7, that uncleanliness, although in the case of the leper, not morally culpable, is a picture of the uncleanliness that lives within all of us, the unclean hearts. And what's his big fear? He knows he's unclean. He dares to run to Jesus, which is pretty ballsy. He kneels before him, but he's got a fear. He's got a, a belief and a fear. If you are willing, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. There's his faith. I get that you're, you're powerful. But are you willing to touch someone that's unclean as me? And you suspect that the leper knows that his real issue is not the leprosy, but the uncleanliness of his heart. But even if he doesn't, we know that that is what this whole system from Leviticus onwards has been built to teach us. His big fear is not about the power of God, but the compassion of God. And so what Jesus does is just so wonderful. You see it in his words. I am willing. Those are good words to hear. You, you come to God today. You come to the Lord Jesus. Fearing that what you've done. Who you are. The kind of sins you've committed. Even these few days away. Jesus will be repelled. He says to you this morning. I am willing to cleanse you. To forgive you. You see it in his action. He reaches out and touches the man. Again, from Leviticus, what should have happened? You, get, you know this. Man's unclean. Jesus is clean. You come into contact with something unclean, you become unclean. But not with Jesus. He is so holy that he's not pulled down the spectrum. He pulls the man up. The man is cleansed. He said in his words, his actions, and his very heart. Verse 41, moved with pity, moved with compassion. It's the word about your bowels. You don't feel, you know, we said we fall in love, it's like, I felt it in my heart. Or, you don't feel things in your heart, do you? You feel them in your guts. And it's the guts word, it's, it's called splank. It's, it's, it's almost like one of those, what they call words that sound like what they are. 
um, Splankinzo, it's a, right down in the guts. Jesus feels compassion. His actions, his words, his deepest feelings are all compassion. The heart of Christ, the priest, see Christ's priestly work in action here, cleansing. The heart of Christ is compassion towards the unclean. Do you ever sing that, sing that song on His Mercy is More? Our sins are many, His Mercy is more. It comes from a letter by John Newton, the, the slave trader who was converted, wrote Amazing Grace. It's a fantastic letter, you can find it online, well worth reading. Very short, but so deep. <coughs> He's got a line in it that says this. He's writing to a, a guy who's, who's, who's a Christian, but is, is really lacking assurance. You know, I just keep sinning, and I'm just not, I, I wonder if I'm not really saved, really. Because if you look at the evidence of my life, it's not very strong. And Newton says this, our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his, Jesus, righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. And then this, these two lines, I think, are so insightful. Most of our complaints, most of our troubles, in other words, in the Christian life, are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. And these evils are not removed in a day. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. In other words, Luther says, it's not Luther, Newton, Luther would agree. We so struggle to get out of the mindset that it is my works that count in some way. I'm sure we're doctrinally accurate with our mouths. Okay? We tell the Catholics, and it's grace alone, faith alone. We tell the non-Christians, you think it's all about being good. No, 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 it's all about Jesus. But in our lived experience, we really struggle to believe that it is all the cleansing is in Christ. And I can come unclean. As Newton says, these evils are not removed in a day. Much of the battle for your Christian life, most of you, are, if not all of you, are young. All of us are young. Um, don't laugh then. Um, <laughs> um, much of the battle in the Christian life is the battle against the legal spirit that remains. Thinking that in some way my status, my assurance relies on me. God's love relies on me. The cleansing relies on me. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will experience it. The Christian life is like a, it's like a walk through the countryside. Sometimes you're in the sunshine and you feel God's love and it's all wonderful. Sometimes you're walking through the trees, uh, you know, a, a, an alleyway of trees or whatever, and the sun sort of pitches through a little bit, but other times you're in darkness in terms of what it feels like. And if you have that legal spirit remaining, then when you're in the darkness, either because of your suffering or all because of your sin and your conscience, the devil will whisper in your ears, see, you're not saved really, you're not a real Christian like whoever. And the legal spirit hears that and echoes it like an echo chamber. Yes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And we doubt and we fear and we quiver. And the answer is not to look inside for more faith as if our faith saved us. But looking into Christ, his compassion and his cleansing. And that's why I keep saying faith is about resting on Jesus. It's not a thing, faith. Everyone has faith. We're either resting in us, trusting ourselves or we're resting on Christ. When we look at Christ, his compassion, his willingness, we realise we need bring nothing. And we see through Christ the love of God, Father, Son and Spirit, who provided the priest and the offering. Even when we weren't looking for it. The grace of God in the priesthood of Christ. And all ultimately for the sake of his people. In a very minor way afterwards, we also are clothed, washed and anointed. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, washed by the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is able to call us a royal priesthood. 
you yourselves are priests, not to sacrifice all the rest of it, but to go and represent Christ to the world. And all this denies, there's also a category of church leaders. We believe the priest, in the priesthood of all believers, but not the, not the presbyteriate of all believers. Presbyter's the decent word for an elder. So I'm not denying that. But all of us, ultimately, because we're in Christ, go through what Aaron went through. Clothed in Christ's righteousness, washed by the Spirit. And sent out to represent God to the people. But we'll do that all the more effectively when our eyes are fixed, not on our performance, but on Christ, the great high priest, who's died for me. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. Our sins are many, his mercies are more. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that we can stand in Christ alone. And so we want to say to you, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would really make it our hearts cry. Nothing in our hands uh, we bring simply to the cross we cling. Father, we think of that. Even think of that hymn. Could our zeal, no respite, no. Could our tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. We praise you. We're not saved by our repentance, by our zeal, by our faith, ultimately by Christ and so enable us to rest in him pray that all the little seeds sown over the last few days from the book of Leviticus would flower into an increasing confidence in Christ alone we thank you for and we praise you for him and we pray that you would turn us increasingly into little mini priests able to represent him to the world but as we do so would we remember and be full of joy that what we are saved by is not our love for him but his for us Bless us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you uh, so much.